O Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Ritual without justice is heresy. This is the message of the prophet Isaiah, and one that the church must always bear in mind. So often we think that religion is about what we think of God, but we have little evidence in scripture or, tr or tradition to suggest that God is concerned more about what we say in the creed than how we treat our neighbors. When the people of God get into trouble, it is by neglecting to do justice. Now, to be clear, worship is always at the foundation. There's a reason why the Ten Commandments begin with prohibitions against serving false gods or using God's name inappropriately. Worship is at the very heart of what it means to be God's people. But what good is a heart without the rest of the body? This is what Isaiah and the prophets of God challenge us to see. Faith is not simply about rituals, it is about justice. And if we practice some perversion of faith without justice, well, that's heresy. Isaiah is writing at a difficult time in Jewish history. Isaiah began somewhere around 740 BC and spans several generations. He is a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is located, a city under constant threat of invasion that will eventually, in 587, fall to the Babylonians. Now today, when calamities befall us, we tend not to think of them as acts of God. When there is a hurricane, pandemic, recession, or war, rarely do we say, well, this is because we have turned away from God. But in Isaiah's time, that was exactly the conclusion to be drawn. And truth be told, I'm with Isaiah on this. Now, to be clear, this is not cause and effect. God is not punishing us with inflation or a war in Ukraine or global warming simply because we've stopped going to church and trampled the poor. It is not an if-then proposition. But the witness of scripture and reason both point us towards a because-therefore dynamic. Because we have abandoned the life-giving ways of God, because we have neglected the call to serve only the Lord, because we have forgotten our duty to care for this earth as stewards, because we have trampled the poor, we therefore are living in a hell of our own making. We are certainly being punished for our actions. But God is not the punisher. It is we ourselves. God always has been, always will be, and is the Savior who pulls us out of the muck of our own messes. You all have seen it in the news and in the pews. The decline of church attendance over the last two decades. And if you want to dive into the data, I can show you all the charts you want. But every denomination, even non-denominational and evangelicals, is dealing with this decline. Is it a coincidence 
that over the same period that church attendance has been declining, that the wealth gap has grown, that partisanship is on the rise, that lying is now a regular part of political discourse, that suicide rates are up 30%, that hate crimes are on the rise, that heat waves and droughts are more intense. The prophets of scripture would say, this is no coincidence at all. And a lot of cultural analysts and just people in general would celebrate that we have more so-called freedom these days to not go to church if we don't want to. And no, I am not in favor of forcing religion on anyone. The problem is that we are all deeply religious people. It's in our bones. Faith in God has simply been replaced with faith in other things, things that overpromise and underdeliver. Things like finding your own truth, which is a crushing weight to put on anyone. As we've seen in this pandemic, science does not make all of our problems just instantly go away. As we are seeing with climate change and a possible recession, capitalism does not lead to prosperity for all. As we've seen in Ukraine, the strongest military in history cannot stop a bully from being a bully. And so when we put other things like power, wealth, or knowledge at the center of things, turning them into our religion, things break because only the God who created all things can sustain all things. What we are seeing is the real cost of religious disaffiliation, and that is because worship, when done as intended, leads to justice. And the secular versions of justice that are out there, they have no undergirding, which is why what was bad last week is now accepted as normative and vice versa. We were told, we were promised that technology, democracy, and capitalism would be non-sectarian replacements for religion and they would usher in utopia. But they are failing us miserably. This is why secular calls for justice are so inconsistent and often as stubbornly exclusivist as those they purport to stand against. Versions of justice that are not grounded in a bigger truth than the people trying to enact it eventually lead to injustice. Worship and justice are two sides of the same coin, and it's the only currency that counts. It is, as one early church theologian put it, if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the chalice either. The message of Isaiah is just this. Because the people have neglected to authentically and intentionally worship God, injustice has filled the land and they will reap the crops that they have planted. And the verses leading into the reading this morning, the people are described as rebellious children who have turned away from God. Isaiah says that they are a people who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. The result, Isaiah writes, is that your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. And when the reading picks up, we heard Isaiah refer to the people as Sodom and Gomorrah. 
This is not a compliment. It would be as if the president stood up the st at the State of the Union and said, we are no better than Nazi Germany. It is intended to offend and provoke, to shock the people into realizing just how bad things have gotten. Now, an important point here, culturally, the sin of Sodom is not what we think it is. Scripture itself tells us what the sin of Sodom was. In Ezekiel, we find, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor or needy. Sodomy is not often what we say it is. It is neglecting the poor. So the people's attention has been grabbed, and then God says to them, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. Israel, like us in a tradition as grand and elegant as the Episcopal Church, was very good at ritual. Now, it's not about being competitive, but if ritual were a competitive sport, we all know who's taking home the gold. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with this, right? Rituals, they form us, they teach us, comfort us, confront us, and unite us. The problem comes when we turn ritual into ritualism, tradition into traditionalism. It's a trap that Israel struggled with and one we always have to be on guard against. The things that we do in worship, we can never fool ourselves into thinking that God needs any of this. God obviously does not need bulls or lambs to eat. God does not need the hymns to get sung, the money to get collected, or these lovely vestments to be worn. If we are doing these things just for the sake of doing them, if we are following ritual notes blindly, if we are bringing little in terms of passion, thought, or intentionality to worship, then what we are doing is what the prophets would call an abomination. And this is why intentional worship is part of our identity at St. Luke's. Intentional means two things. For one, we strive to worship with intentionality. Though it is a trap to be on guard against, we strive to avoid empty gestures, rote praying, or less than enthusiastic singing. Now, of course, we are all humans. Not a single one of us is perfect. And sometimes the very best that we can do is drag ourselves out of bed to get here. At which point, having a strong ritual to carry us is a wonderful gift. But our intention is that everything we see, hear, say, touch, smell, and taste is pointing us to the love, mercy, and peace of God. There is intentionality in everything we do. And yes, I know sometimes it looks like fussiness, but this is because we know the power of a ritual to shape us. And we want to be very intentional about what our worship is shaping us into being. And this is the other meaning of intentional worship. We worship with intentionality because we intend 
for worship to do something, namely to assure us of God's abundant grace and gather us as the beloved community of God. And this is where worship gets connected to justice. It's why worship is not done for the sake of God. It's done for us. We do not come to worship because God needs it, but because we do. And so do our neighbors. We worship to remind ourselves that we are not the center of the universe, that no one is the worst thing that they have ever done, that because the love of God, all shall be well. And these truths that worship forms us in is what enables us to do the work of justice. Isaiah describes this as when we cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. This verse, Isaiah 117, was Elizabeth Duncan Kuntz's guiding and favorite verse of scripture. It's right there in the icon of her as a reminder of this connection of worship to justice. The Bible that she is holding is turned open to this passage from Isaiah. And Libby worshiped at St. Philip's and then here at St. Luke's, hearing the word of God, receiving the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, and she dedicated her life to pursuing justice. She's a great model for us all of how intentional worship leads directly to the justice of striving for God's beloved community. And because worship is not something that we are doing for God, but rather something that God has given to us to feed us and form us in grace, it means that worship is not a test, not something that we have to worry about getting right. The bad things that happen in life are not because we said the words in the wrong order in worship, but because we are not often intentional in our worship because we resist being transformed by God's truth, because we neglect the matter of justice. And in this indictment, we are reminded though that the words of grace are never far away. As God says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Though we can be idolatrous and perpetuate injustice, God forgives us and encourages us to repent and pursue intentional worship and justice anew. And there is an important word that links worship to justice. And it is what I want to leave you with this morning. The word is sacrifice. Intentional worship and justice both take sacrifice. And without sacrifice, both can do more harm than good. Isaiah hints at this when he says that our willingness and obedience lead to flourishing. For Isaiah, sacrifice was about drawing nearer to God by offering back to God the gifts of God. These sorts of sacrifices make it clear that we trust in God to provide for us because we know that it is from God from whom all blessings flow. Sacrificing is what we are made to do in the beginning, humanity is in a garden, and it is given a job that can only be described as priestly. The job of a priest is to make sacrifices and to help people draw closer to God. And it is not just ordained priests who do this work. We are all called to make sacrifices. This is what it means to be a part of the priesthood of all believers. It is the role of the church and all of its members 
to live sacrificially following the way of Jesus. And when we sacrifice, there's a cost. We relinquish control and give something up. But by God's grace, in a sacrifice, nothing is lost. Sacrifice is participating in God's economy, which is not a zero-sum game as is our economy. This is why Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. For in sacrificing, we receive an even greater gift of living in the way of love. However, if our worship costs us nothing, we have to question whether or not perhaps we are worshiping an idol of our own making. If our work in the world requires no courage, no risk, no sacrifice, then it might not really be justice. And so what sacrifices might we as a people of faith make? Well, one sacrifice is to lament and tell the truth. Give up those empty platitudes and the cultural pressure to pretend that everything is okay. Fasting is another sacrifice that can remind us of our bodily needs and our dependence on God and one another to survive. Giving money to the church and to charity is a form of sacrifice. It helps us to thank God and it reminds us that we do not serve our money. Loving and forgiving our neighbors and our enemies costs us our ego and our pride. We sacrifice time and energy by coming to church, setting aside time for prayer, reading scripture, serving those in need. And of course, the culminating and principal sacrifice is the Eucharist. When we remember Christ's sacrifice for us and offer in return our praise and lives in joyful service. St. Augustine once preached that God seeks us, not what is ours. We do not sacrifice things that we can easily replace or mean little to us, but rather in response to the supremely costly sacrifice of Jesus' own life, we respond with sacrifices of our own. Both true worship and genuine justice require sacrifice as we empty ourselves of the idols of control, comfort, and wealth so that there is space to be filled with the abundant peace and grace of God. I opened this sermon with a formula that ritual without justice is heresy. But if we correct the formula to ritual with justice, well then we end up with what Jesus calls the greatest commandment, sacrificial love of God and our neighbor.